Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Before we dive into today's episode, just a programming note, we're going to take a break for the summer and then return in the fall with some new episodes. But today, I am so pleased to say that our guest is Kelly Craighead, president and CEO of the Cruise Lines International Association. Over the past year, due to COVID, the travel industry generally, and the cruising industry in particular, has faced enormous challenges. The industry is still navigating its way through, and Kelly is at the forefront of tackling complex issues relating to health, logistics, public policy, and so much more. Her career as a staffer has helped prepare her. Before joining Cruise Lines International, Kelly worked for more than 20 years in government, politics, and the private sector. During the Obama administration, she served in the Commerce Department as the very first Deputy Assistant Secretary for Travel and Tourism. During the Clinton administration, she served as a top aide to First Lady Hillary Clinton. In between those two administrations, she was an independent consultant to nonprofits and later led the Democracy Alliance, the country's largest network of donors dedicated to building organizations in support of balanced political discourse. Kelly and I had a lot to talk about. Her career, lessons learned, and what she sees ahead for the cruising industry. Kelly and I spoke on Thursday, June 10th, and I hope you enjoy the show. Kelly Craighead, welcome to Staffer. Jim Papa, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have this opportunity. I am thrilled to have you uh, on the show today as our guest. You have in what's known in the biz as a really cool job. Um, but I'd like to start with all my guests about how they got to where they are today, um, which is, you know, where they grew up and what family life was like. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Happy to. And I do have a really good gig. Um, and it really uh, it really is just part of my overall story. So I grew up in San Jose, California. I went to school at Chico State. I went to school for tourism. Uh, and hospitality management. And I really came to Washington actually in a really um, kind of circuitous way. Um, I was co-opted into politics after I served in student government at a time when uh, California was having a budget shortfall and the, the student government actually owned and operated all of the businesses on campus. And so there was a hostile takeover of the corporation. And so I really just... Uh, got the bug then, and it was just, you know, amplified um, when the Dukakis campaign came through our campus, and I saw an advance team for the first time, and they literally took over the newspaper, they took over the student government, they mobilized the entire uh, town, they mobilized the entire campus, and I thought, I want to do that someday. So, of course, that's how I started on the 92 campaign, and and the rest came unfolded from there. Oh, that's really cool. So that, that 92 campaign was Bill Clinton's campaign, correct? During the that's Democratic right. primary. That's exactly right. And you were tasked you know, by the campaign with organizing events around campus, that sort of thing? Well, I will remind you that I wanted to do advance. Uh, and that was back in the day, you know, before there were cell phones and and everything you see today. And so I, you know, when I didn't know anybody, I wasn't connected to anyone. I, you know, was a Californian without any direct connections. And so I had to work my little heart out to um, 
basically pester Gary Ginsburg enough uh, that I think just to kind of get me to stop haranguing him through kind of overnight deliveries and all kinds of archaic modes of communication, he kind of passed me off to the spouse. And uh, so I did start doing advance for Hillary Clinton in the 92 campaign. I was one of uh, four of her original people, along with my best pal, Capricia Marshall, um, and Todd Weiler, and, and uh, Jim Cullinan. And so we just, the, the four of us took it on the road with Hillary Clinton in it. And then we wound up going to the White House. Oh, incredible. That really was a, a time in advance where, you know, they, they'd send somebody with a roll of quarters, right, to use That's the payphones right. to, and then figure out, like, build an event, build a stage, get an audience. This is, you know, this is what the backdrop should look like. Go. That's right. That's right. And in fact, back in, that, in those days, they also gave you campaign drafts. So it was a, a little bit like traveler's checks. And it was a little bit like the Wild West. Um, some people say it was the glory days because you really, it really was being sent out to kind of figure it all out from soup to nuts without the kind of very heavy handedness of a campaign headquarters. So it was extraordinary. And in fact, I loved it. Um, I got to travel all over the country in a way that, you know, a girl from the suburbs of California wouldn't have had a chance and so when I had a chance to join the plane um, as part of the traveling staff, I was really conflicted because what I really wanted to do was to do advance, to travel around the country and set up these events. And, um, and it was actually a really hard choice for me. And of course, I, I did join on as the trip director really early on. I helped plan the convention in New York. Uh, and and didn't stop traveling until actually COVID hit. So for the majority of my career, I have been either uh, traveling in the United States or traveling around the world for work. Absolutely incredible. So, you know, you graduate from college and you find yourself in the White House, in the office of the First Lady, as trip director to start. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with that type of operation, kind of talk about, you know, what you did um, and then also talk about some of the jobs that followed that one. Right. So the... Kind of the, I guess the short answer is it's being the chief cook um, and bottle washer. So I was fortunate to, um, you know, work uh, basically all eight years as the trip director, but I had many other titles with many other assignments added on top. But fundamentally, it is all of the organizing and the planning and the connecting of all of the pieces to create the whole. So it's everything from being part of the political process and the strategic approach to how you are going to advance the White House priorities. What does that mean in terms of um, interfacing either with local authorities or with um, foreign ministries? And how do you interface with the security apparatus? How do you interface with the media? And how do all of these component parts come together to execute a flawless um, visit, which is basically anytime you step out of the White House. So it could be, um, you know, going to church on Sunday morning. It could be, as I was fortunate to be able to do, um, go to Nelson Mandela's inauguration in 1994. It could be, again, you know, what I had a chance to do, which was you know, just travel to some of the most historic events uh, and be part of history for those eight important years at the end of the 90s when it was the fall of communism and the rise of, of you know, a, a free society. You know, and, and 
even then, um, Hillary Clinton was a unique political figure. You know, as first lady, she had a stat, a global stature that was unique to first ladies. Um, you traveled with her all over the world. You became one of her closest advisors. Tell me uh, some of the things that you learned from her about being a staffer. Right. Well, you know, what's so interesting as I look back, since I'm now older now than she was when I met her then, sit with that for a minute because wow. it kind of freaks me out, <laughs> um, is, you know, the fact that she she was such, you know, she was very unique. She is very unique. She's had a very unique experience, but she is a student of history. She did know a lot about previous first ladies. And a lot of what she did was that kind of that prep work, that advanced work of, of knowing as much as you can possibly know, and then looking for the ways that you could push it a little bit further. And that's why she was able to kind of extend beyond the margins, because she could she could really stand on the shoulders of the first ladies who came before her and then add her own appeal. So from a staff per- perspective, and why I think she is an extraordinary staffer is that she she'll put in the time. You know, she will literally know everything there is to know. She will anticipate every question and she will be as prepared as you can possibly be to execute flawlessly on whatever the task is. Yeah, and for those who may have forgotten this part of her biography, she was a congressional staffer uh, for a time. Hillary Clinton herself was a staffer before she was first lady of of Arkansas and the United States and U.S. Senator and Secretary of State, et cetera. Um, One of the elements of being a staffer at at the level you were at is the brief. That is the, you know, it can be 30 seconds. It could be half an hour that you have to present to the principal what they have to know for the thing that they're about to do. What makes for a good brief? Oh, my gosh. I love this subject so much because um, it is both my uh, superpower and one of my weaknesses because I've really been able to develop what I think is a great brief, which is calling it down to the most essential words. You know, if you have three words, what are they? If you have the luxury of time to have five words, what are they? Um, So I think it's a real skill to be able to understand the situation they're about to walk into and to be able to distill a lot of information into the most germane, actionable uh, words that you can utter so that they can uh, deliver. And I say it's one of my... Um, kind of those areas where I have to watch is I, there were many times because I was very young at the time when I would be around policy people who, you know, sometimes use a lot of words and I knew what she needed to know and I knew how little time we had. So I would frequently, unfortunately, just cut in and just jump right to the, to the chase. And so one of the things that I've learned over these many years is, you know, how do you finesse that a little bit so that you are supporting everyone around you, but also staying on task? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things about uh, being a staffer that I, I really admire for those who do it well is whatever you think you are prepared for, you really also need to be prepared for something very different. So if you were told you're going to have 10 minutes to brief, Actually, that may turn out just to be 30 seconds. And you can't 
you can't waste that 30 seconds. You can't flub it. It's really important that you be able to scale and know what the actual kernel is. That's right. So one of my favorite sayings, and for all the people who have ever worked with me or the young people who have worked for me, is fail to plan, plan to fail. And I am an extraordinary planner because you have to plan for every scenario. You have to plan, in fact, for the the possibility you wouldn't even have, you know, 30 seconds to brief. So you have to have contingency plans. You have to have all of that prep work. Um, hope for the best, plan for the worst, and then, you know, deal with what comes your way. Well, I and I, I think I have a personal opinion that advanced staffers, people who come up doing advance are truly experts at this because every hour, as you said, stepping outside of the White House is a fresh opportunity for disaster. That's right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so many things can go wrong. And back in the day when you were given the role of quarters and a little bit of guidance and had to go build something, there is just an infinite number of loose ends that can trip up the candidate, get caught on film, right, and is uh, then reported upon, and it ruins the day. And it can ruin the day for several days, you know, uh, if things aren't handled correctly. That's right. And so, you know, what it does teach you. So first of all, I should say um, the campaign in 92, which was 91 into 92, was really pretty brief compared to the campaigns over the last couple of cycles. Um, So much more of my time and much more of my experience was spent while we were actually at the White House, uh, where I did spend all eight years and where I did do almost every pre-advance and then come back and do almost every trip. And so I've been to more than a hundred countries more than a couple of times. And so every time, um, every time you go outside and you're, you are at that level and you do have that kind of spotlight on you, you're always learning and you're learning something new and something different. But what you really learn is to look around corners. What that, what you really develop as a sixth sense is the ability to foresee what might be coming your way and it's multidimensional. Um, you know, I'll tell you that by the, you know, by the time uh, Hillary was running for the Senate, um, I, I felt like I knew the Secret Service procedures as well as anybody else as it came when it came to rope lines and, and kind of what, what to expect. And since, you know, I was the only person who could be with her um, from the White House because it really had to be the entire campaign. It was a whole new team of people it was absolutely focused on on the state of New York. And so, um, you know, it's a wonderful skill that I've developed, but it also can drive people incredibly crazy because, because I am looking two steps ahead and I, it's built on a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of tough lessons learned. Yeah, it's like doomsday prepping. Like when does it, you know, when does it stop? You just keep That's going. Right. Um, let me ask, was there ever a time when something didn't go right and or or it was a near miss and you said, OK, I will always make sure that I, you know, add that to the things I'm looking out for. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's a million of those. But I'll tell you one of my favorite stories of 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 just really kind of fundamentally um, who I am, why I can do the jobs that I've done. And it's because there is no job that's too big or too small for a good staffer. You just do what needs to get done. So. There is one story uh, in particular when we were in Seattle, there were protesters, the 
microphones were not working, um, and I literally had to crawl in my well-coiffed hair and uh, on my stomach across and behind the back of the stage to try and make sure that all of the cords were pressed in. And I wasn't the advanced person at the time. I was the trip director, which makes it all the more interesting. And so, you know, there are all the things, depending on which you know, which job I was in that, you know, I will always make sure that there is a plan B, C, and D. I will always make sure that there is, you know, the best technological fixes and technicians uh, nearby to fix whatever might happen. I mean, there's just kind of these recurring lessons of, you know, fail to plan, plan to fail, and make sure you, you have plans A, B, and C. I love that story. Because anyone listening or knowing you would say, president and CEO of the Cruise Lines Association, so awesome. Just people listening, you, at some point in your career, if asked to army crawl, to plug in a wire to the right outlet, that's what it takes. But you have to know that you're not asked to do it. You just have to (laughs) know that when you see something, you do something and you do it in whatever way you can. And um Jim, you know me well enough to know that something like plugging in a cord to make sure a microphone is working is not necessarily my skill set, <laughs> but it is It is just an example of what great staff work is, which is get it done. That's right. Figure it out. Get it done. I love it. So you spent all years at the White House um, when presumably there were many opportunities along the way to do other interesting and rewarding things. What made you stay that whole that whole time? Right. Well, I mean, it is an extraordinary opportunity to be able to serve your country in this way. I mean, it really is nothing I ever uh, envisioned when I was growing up. It was never something I aspired to. But ironically, what I did aspire to, what I did want to do when I grew up was to plan the Olympics. And the uh, 1996 Olympics happened when I was serving in the White House. And I did very much want to um, you know, move to Atlanta and be able to work for the Olympics. But it was a really um, non-choice to make because you do, you know, and, and, I, and I think this is something I learned from my great aunt and from my grandmother and from my mother and just how I was raised, which is, you know, when you're asked to serve, you serve. And, and to know in real time, I mean, um, uh, You'll have, to, you'll have to go back, but literally the experiences I was having, particularly after 1994, when we began to travel a great deal, um, when our, our principal um, agenda was promoting um, democratic ideals, um, promoting civil societies, promoting um, women and health care uh, and children, that I got to see and do things that you can't imagine. Um, you know, one of my most memorable experiences is we were, you know, in some far remote Indian village where when I had gone on the pre-advance to try and scout locations, uh, even the Peace Corps had not been to this location. And we set up a tent and there was an event on microfinance and microfinance um, was a concept um, from the Grameen Bank that really is a way to empower women. And so women, um, India at the time, had a caste system, and women uh, walked 24, 48 hours to come to this event, and their sheer 
presence at the event lifted them up uh, within that cast system. And it was, I mean, those are the kinds of experiences you can't, you can't ever do again. So I did have to say to myself that there would be other Olympics and I really needed to, to finish what I started. And it was a great honor to be able to do that. Yeah. God, what a ride. Um, Unfortunately, great rides do come to an end, and uh, the the Clintons left the White House in 2001. Um, you then helped found and run something called the Democracy Alliance. Can you tell us about that, what it is and what it did? That's what it right, does, I and I say. will, and I'll tell you, um, some things come to an end, but some things just kept on going, and that was certainly the case for me. You know, politics was not my purpose. You know, I, I started because I wanted to do advance. Uh, we were fortunate to win. Uh, President Clinton was reelected. Um, and then and then Secretary Clinton chose to run for the Senate and she won. Uh, so at every point, I kept thinking, I'm going to I'm going to go back to California and I'm going to go back uh, into hospitality or tourism management. And at every step of the way, <laughs> there was another opportunity where, again, when you see an opportunity to help and serve, you do. So again, and I'll go back to the role of quarters. So remember, you know, now we're in the early 2000s and, um, you know, people were not as connected then as they are now. So the fact that I spent 300 days a year traveling for almost 10 years, um, you know, from capital city to capital city, whether that was in the United States, around the world, meant that I developed an incredible network of, of people from all different walks of life, from entertainment to technology to business and finance and what have you. Um, but those people were not connected to each other. So uh, after having spent eight years in the White House, after working with people like Secretary Ron Brown, who were really um, opening up whole new markets after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, you could see that there was this opportunity to bring some of these lessons about a free and independent media, about uh, um, the rule of law and a civil society into what at the time was this shifting um, political discourse in the country where there wasn't a level playing field. So really, Rob Stein is the founder of the Democracy Alliance, and he came through to that through a research project that he did that really... Um, illustrated um, that that if you wanted to have a level playing field for public discourse so that you could have a debate on ideas without it being uh, overly weighted one to the other, that there were assets and gaps um, kind of in the world of ideology. And, and so, again, my contribution, my early contribution was doing what I love to do, which is connecting people to people and people to places. And so I was able to really bring people who I knew shared that kind of idea um, or, or business people who thought that politics was so incredibly inefficient that there had to be a better way to do it. But really, my function was to, to just bring people to the table to see for themselves and to make a choice to to give a portion of their political giving um, together. And that was really the power of the Democracy Alliance was the idea that you could leverage your giving with somebody else to build a series of institutions that would level the, the, you know, the playing field for public discourse. And so Rob Stein always said he did not want to be the CEO. I always said I wanted to go back to California and stay in tourism. And 
lo and behold, I, I wound up becoming the CEO of the Democracy Alliance for, for almost 10 years. Well, an organization that has helped change the landscape. I mean, there are institutions today that are just viewed as critical players, you know, in the, in the pantheon of politics and political discourse that didn't exist uh, prior to that. Uh, but I do want to return uh, to public service because you did. Um, and it was the first ever deputy assistant secretary for travel and tourism at uh, the Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. I can think of no one, you know, better suited for this role than you, but it was a new role. So can you describe what it was and what you did? Yes. And it, I mean, it, it has been... Again, I mean, just unbelievable to be able to serve two presidents and in two administrations um, and to be able to at long last all these many years later, be able to go back to what my true passion is, which is travel and tourism. And so um, and and again, I felt so passionate about it because I had done so much travel outside of the United States. I had witnessed firsthand how many countries actually have a cabinet level position that's dedicated as a tourism minister um, because tourism is such an important um, contributor to many countries' GDP, and it is something you have to compete for. You have to attract visitors to come to you. And in the United States, we consider travel an export because visitors are coming here and they're leaving their dollars here. So it's an export. So this office sat in the Department of Commerce, and it was the public sector um, counterpart to a private, quasi-private sector entity that had been created through an act of Congress through the Tourism Promotion Act to actually promote international tourism to the United States. Um, because what they had found uh, after 9-11 is that the tourism industry was one of the industries who had that had not come back. Uh, so I was just absolutely honored to uh, represent the United States as our de facto tourism minister um, to really promote the United States. So it was a dream come true. And it was really, um, you know, having been a staffer uh, for a long, long time, it was hard for me to make the transition to be a CEO uh, at the Democracy Alliance, which I was able to do because I was really supported by our staff who said it's time, it's time to make the turn. So by the time I came um, into this role as the head of travel and tourism for the federal government, I had all these years of experience to build on um, what it's like to be a principal, to, to practice diplomacy in a way that I hope made our country proud and helped us move against a national strategy, which we were the only country in the world to have that was focused on a public-private partnership to attract 100 million international visitors to the United States a year, and that would generate $250 billion annually. And so that's really um, where I've left my politics at the at the door because, you know, my party is the party of tourism. It is the power of people and people and places. And it really was, you know, just the kind of the full circle of of having left Chico State, having been sidetracked by politics, having grown to really understand the impact, the positive role of government that can be played as it relates to helping people. And to be able to do it in a tourism context was just a dream come true. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And you mentioned, you know, being the principal, right? So, I mean, you've been a staffer for a long time, and then you're a principal in two different roles. 
when you are hiring staff, what is you know what are the qualities that you're looking for, and how do you tease them out uh, in the interview process? You know, how do you know that you're getting what you're hoping you're getting? Right, boy, that's a great question. So, you know, I'll I'll, I'll tell you to the day I die, I'll just I, I will tell you I'm a staffer. I may be a principal but I'm always a staffer. And even when you're a CEO, you have a board and you are a staffer to that board. You have members and you're a staffer to those members. Um, and so I do look for those qualities that I feel like I have that I was fortunate to be around uh, for all those years in the White House and in the Obama administration, which is you know, somebody who understands that there is no job that's too big or small. Um, that is willing to put in the hours no matter what it takes. You know, I think it takes a tremendous amount of fortitude. And so, it, you know, part of kind of what you see come out when you interview people, and the, that is a whole subject, that's a whole hour we should do on its own, um, but is, you know, do you see somebody who has that determination? Is there somebody who really wants this job because they want to do the job, not because they think it's a stepping stone to something else? Um, and will they do whatever it takes to do that job really, really well? And will they be a good team partner? Like there's, you know, you gotta have, you gotta have people who are going to be in it with you because it's, some people say it takes a village, and I certainly think that's true. <laughs> uh, yes, somebody very wise said that. Um, and some very wise people before her said that's that. That's right. So that is really... right. That's exactly right. Um, so you became president and CEO of the Cruise Lines Industry Association uh, in January of 2019. And you have now, you know, had to navigate through what is easily the hardest time for travel and tourism um, in memory, in anyone's memory, um, worldwide. What sort of crisis management um, experiences do you draw on from being a staffer for helping you, know, you guide the organization and the industry through COVID? Right. Well, I mean, it has, COVID has been an extraordinary time in the world um, for everyone. Uh, the travel and tourism industries have been, I think, arguably the hardest hit of any of the uh, sectors of the economy. You know, one out of every 10 jobs is a, a tourism job. And I think what we learned really from um, this experience is, you know, you can live in the smallest town uh, in the United States and somehow travel and tourism affects you. And so when I think should this ever end and should we be on the other side if there's a silver lining i hope that we have put ourselves in a position as a series of industries within this industry segment um that this isn't just fun like you know the great part is it is a lot of fun but it actually it's great business and it means a lot of jobs a lot of meaningful jobs for a lot of people that makes a huge difference in the fabric of people's lives all over the world um, and so for me, it's been uh, one of the biggest challenges I've ever confronted from work. But I also realize, uh, just like I could not have been the first head of travel and tourism for the federal government, um, you know, in a long, long time, had I not had all of these other experiences, had I not been around heads of state, heads of government, had I not learned all of these lessons um, that I learned when I was traveling around the world on behalf of, of the office of the White House. And again, back to the beginning, 
you you have to know as much as you can possibly know. You have to anticipate as much as you can possibly anticipate, and you have to plan as much as you can possibly plan. And to do that in an industry that was wholly new to me, um, you know, the complexities of maritime policy, the complexity and the logistics and the operations that are involved when it is, in fact, an international activity um, is something that only if you had my background could you be prepared for this. So I think we've been fortunate at CLIA to have the right leader at the right time. And I think we were fortunate that I had been so battle tested that I had served in government when things like Ebola happened so that you can imagine what has to happen from a federal government perspective um, to protect your citizens. And therefore, how would we as a trade association support our members who are really arranged? It's not to our, we really must change our name. It's not just cruise lines. It's the travel agents who book cruises, of which 75% of all cruises are still booked by travel agents. And those travel agents or agencies almost exclusively book cruise it's not just the travel agents, it is a broad network of suppliers of all sizes. So the mom and pop shop that's actually in Miami that presses linens to go out on the ships, but it could be the, the floral provider from Georgia. It could be the egg producer in Colorado. I mean, just the number of jobs um, that are that make up the cruise community are, are our members. So it, and it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world. We have offices um, all over the world. And so it really is this just massive complexity of, of, of how do you help people? Well, so. and, and your background is so perfectly suited because you've been in and you know, around table, rooms and tables where policymakers are trying to figure out complex things. And you know, they can't, you know, they can't know as much as the industry players know. It, they ha it has to be shrunk down. And my experience on, on Capitol Hill and, and at the White House, travel and tourism, I think, is still an underappreciated economic driver in this country. You know, there, of course, states like Florida or Nevada, right, those who's, who, you know, who are famous for being uh, tourist destinations, it's probably a little – the policymakers there know it better but if you were to look at the you know top industries for almost all 50 states, you'll find travel and tourism really up near the top. It may not be number one, but chances are pretty good that it's number two or number three. You bet. You bet. And it's, you know, because there's domestic tourism, which we're, we've seen a great deal of until some of these international borders have started to open up because Americans are so highly vaccinated. And so it really is, you know, if you live in Washington, D.C. and you you know, hop in the car or take the metro and you go out of the city limits and you are visiting the extraordinary wineries in Virginia or you are hiking in the beautiful mountains or at the beach in Delaware. I mean, we, we live in such a great place, but all of that is tourism. And the people who got you there, whether you went by plane, whether you went by rail, whether you went by car, rented car, um, whether you ate in a restaurant, slept in a hotel or short-term rental in a tent at a camp, in a park. The, these are all the facets of travel and tourism. And that's why I think it's so important for, again, uh, to be part of this party of tourism where it is nonpartisan. It's not even bipartisan. It's just nonpartisan. It's, it is just a, an amazing way to 
give back by also giving yourself that transformational experience of, of recreating yourself because you're meeting new people, you're going to new places, and it really is just good for your soul. Yeah. So let me ask you about a one of the intersections of public policy and travel, and that has to do, I've been reading some in, about in Florida, whether or not cruise lines and perhaps other businesses can require proof of vaccination. You know, what's happening there and what should the public who wants to be taking cruises soon, what should they expect? Right. Well, this is, I mean, it's fascinating. I really, you know... When I look back on all of the experiences I've had, um, you know, it's always interesting in politics to understand the kind of the role of the states and the role of the federal government and the role of the courts and the importance of the courts. Uh, so let me just give you just a brief little primer. So cruise is always in an exceptional category as compared to some of the other travel and tourism segments because they are in the United States by law required to report in ways that airlines are not, trains are not, hotels are not, uh, which is neither here nor there. But as any good journalist knows, a better story is made when you actually have data. So there's a lot of data that's available for cruise ship, which I think gives us a disproportionate time in the spotlight. Um, and that certainly has been the case during COVID. Um, as a result, um, you know, I think that the executives who run these cruise line companies and the directors who run these ports, and it's important that ports and cruise lines are looked at together, have made extraordinary commitments over the 40-year span of this industry to always lead the way. Uh, they led the way at the beginning of COVID, clearly an early symbol of the pandemic uh, at a time when no one knew what this virus was, governments and health authorities and companies alike. Um, and we voluntarily suspended. And during that global suspension of operations, we had to bring 300 ships in. That's how small the industry is. Um, and to be able to repatriate all of those passengers to their home countries, many of whom did not want to take them, to return, uh, you know, 100,000 crew to more than 100 countries, again, to some countries who did not want to take them when borders are closing. Um, and so the, you know, the net result was that we were able to use our time to work with world-class experts, epidemiologists, experts in medicine and science to develop a set of protocols uh, that we were not required to produce, but our cruise companies wanted to make sure to put people first, to have the highest bar for being able to continue to have this kind of experience, even in the middle of a health emergency. So cruising resumed all around the world, except for the United States, I should say it resumed in many markets last summer. And it started using protocols where you would test before you got on the ship. We were the first industry to require 100% testing of passengers and crew um, to have enhanced medical capabilities. So these ships come in a lot of different sizes. They're small luxury ships. They're big mass market ships. Um, all of the ships that are members of CLIA have enhanced medical capabilities, meaning that you have um, not only facilities, but um, medical staff, trained medical staff that's actually on the ship. Um, and now, as a result, these protocols include all of these things, plus increase in ve ventilation, plus these arrangements that are made in advance, 
and contracted um, if and when there's a case of COVID that comes on board so that we are mitigating the risk of COVID um, more than you can expect to see almost anywhere except for maybe inside of a hospital. And that was before there were vaccines, which is going to get me to your question. So vaccines obviously have been a game changer um, for the whole wide world, especially for travel and tourism. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, you would not want to require anyone to be vaccinated. I think for cruisers, however, cruisers love to cruise. We do a lot of research at CLIA. All of our research indicates that almost 97% uh, of known cruisers have been or will be vaccinated before they take a cruise. It's an incredibly high number. We also have an interesting stat that says of people who have not cruised but know they want to cruise, 10% would actually choose to be vaccinated when they otherwise wouldn't to be able to cruise. So there's a lot of support for vaccination and there's a lot of interest um, in being able to provide this extraordinary travel experience. And when everybody's vaccinated, you get to, you know, you get to party like it's 2019, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no masks and physical distancing and, and what have you. So, uh, you know, this is a political situation that's playing out that has to do with, you know, who's got the power to do what. Um, what I do know is that the cruise companies are always going to put people first and health and safety is beyond the top priority. And so you've seen that some companies have already announced that they are during this specific period of time only going to travel with um, passengers and crew uh, vaccinated, which we call highly vaccinated. Uh, there are other companies uh, that focus on children or families, uh, so they're not eligible for the vaccines, in which case these robust protocols that have been in place before vaccines that have proven effective, um, and in fact so effective that the incident rate uh, on a ship is so much lower than anything that you'd see on land, will keep practicing those protocols. And what we know is even before the vaccines, when, when these protocols have been enforced, you still have a great time. Like you really get to see and do things uh, that help, you know, help preserve a little bit of yourself as we all struggle through the pandemic. Yeah, the uh, it, it really is one of the most complicated industries and public policy, you know, entanglements. And I uh, thank you for what you do and really wish you and, and the entire industry the best of luck because we all love travel and we want to get back to full ex life experience as soon as possible, vaccinated, of course, um, and, and sanely and safely. You know, the, the reason I love travel and tourism so much is, you know, it will make you friends where you otherwise wouldn't be it. It introduces and exposes you to experiences and places that change and shape who you are. You know, some of the, you know, some of the greatest champions that I've met are people who are on the other side of me and my past political life because they believe in the power and the transformational power of travel and tourism. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about being a staffer because I think it really uh, has been the fact that I, I'm proud to be a staffer, that I think staffers um, hold all the keys to the kingdom and that good staff work is just, you know, paramount to Yo-Yo Ma playing his cello or, um, you know, rocket science or brain surgery, anything, because it really, it's hard to be a good staffer, but when you are a good staffer, you really uh, can appreciate everything that happens around you. And, 
you know, you're continually striving for excellence, and that's certainly true for the cruise industry. So I'm, I'm, I'm just honored to have this position and to be in a place to use all of my staff experience um, to guide the restart of cruise operations all around the world. And, and had I not been all around the world, had I not sat at policy tables and in meetings with these governments for so many years to really understand the psyche of different people and places, I could never have done it. And I can't do it without a great team. And our team is an extraordinary team filled with great staffers. So, so I'm just, you know, suffice to say exhausted after all of this, but really grateful for the experiences I've had and for the opportunity to be doing the work I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm uh, just so impressed by what you're doing and in your full career, you are truly a staffer extraordinaire, uh, as well as an ambassador uh, for the country and the industry. One of my favorite questions is called Across the Aisle. Uh, can you tell me about a public official or their staff that you have a great relationship with and why? Oh, great question. You know, I, you know, as I've said, you know, really my party is the party of tourism. And we are so lucky in the United States that we have such a great bipartisan coalition of supporters for travel and tourism. And as the U.S. cruise industry gets ready to restart, it really wouldn't be possible um, without people like Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Dan Sullivan. Um, you know, Dan Sullivan's enthusiasm for travel and tourism is contagious. Um, it's hard to be around him and not be convinced and compelled to buy in. And Lisa Murkowski, of course, is just an extraordinary public servant for uh, the people of Alaska as is the governor. And so I've been so honored uh, to be part of the cruise industry and work so many times, hours and days and days and months um, with both sides of the aisle. And I, I, I think the Florida delegation, the Alaska delegation are clearly standouts because there's cruise states, but there's also, you know, California and New York that are cruise state that also just have exceptional leaders. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm very fortunate that I'm united through this travel and tourism thread that lets me, you know, be in the presence of, of people who are really making change and really working on behalf of their citizens. I mean, I'll just, I'll just quickly say that if, if Alaska lost a second cruise season, which they were on the verge of doing, it would have been $3.3 billion lost. And the thing about cruise is cruising can take you to places that airlift sometimes can't. So some of these communities in southeastern Alaska are entirely dependent on a functioning cruise industry. And there were a lot of boulders in the path to being able to have cruising resume this summer um, from Alaska, which we're on track to do. But it was really made possible by uh, Alaska's elected leaders. And I'd like to think that CLIA played a very important supporting role. But, you know, when you think about reaching across the aisle, Many, many, many of um, of these cruise state elected officials um, are some of the best elected people in office today. I think. Well, and as you say, the you know when senators like Murkowski and Sullivan get into an issue, that you know as staffers we respect the expertise that they build. Right? They put the work into it because they know it's important to their state and their constituents. But there's a lot to learn. And they become expert in it and partners to help solve complex problems. 
They do. And again, you get exposed to their staff and they have extraordinary staff. Yeah. And it really, you know, one of the things I love about being in Washington and I love about being a staffer is just, again, those those bonds that transcend the parties because you meet somebody else who's had a set of shared experiences similar to yours. And it really doesn't matter about the ideology. It's about the people. And, you know, some of my, you know, favorite people that I work with today um, and have worked with in the past, of course, are Republicans and are big Republicans. And again, being able to be in this space that is nonpartisan is just a joy because it just it makes it so much easier to go through life knowing that you have some shared pursuits. And that's the spice of life. Well put. My last question for you. Uh, if I was to raise the money and be able to build on the National Mall a Hall of Fame to staffers, who would you nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame and why? Besides you, Jim? Right. Of course. Of course. It's my building. Okay. So in addition I'm to in Jim there. Papa, I would put um, – I truly have to I'd, – I'd have to put almost every person that I've worked with, kind of the entirety of the original Hillary Land that I served with um, right off the bat, no doubt about it. Now, all of the, you know, all of the people that we know in common from Terry McAuliffe and, and John Podesta and Tom Nides and just literally I've been so fortunate, um, much to the curse of young people who come in my sphere to have, have worked with extraordinary, extraordinary staff people. And so it'd be a really big, fat hall of fame filled with really extraordinary people, including people like you, Jim. You are kind. Uh, but the, <laughs> but uh, I'll get working on the bronze busts for those other people that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, yep. But truly, Kelly, I could talk to you all day, and I so appreciate your time and your service um, to the country and the cause uh, that you're involved in today. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm just, I couldn't be more thrilled to be asked, and I would love to be asked again. Um, and I just, I think what you're doing is great. And I think this is such an honorable, I mean, this is such an honorable profession. And I just am, you know, again, flattered to, to be invited. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Remember, everyone, we are still accepting submissions on our staffer hotline, which you can reach by calling 888-416-2132. We have had a great response to the hotline, and we've already made a couple shows out of it. Keep those stories coming, and remember, they can be about anything that you found memorable, meaningful, funny about your experience as a staffer. They will be anonymous, so you can share literally anything. The length of the recording goes about four minutes. If you get cut off, just call back in and finish your story. Again, that number is 888-416-2132. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. 